This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Though one's guru is not perfect, he is enough to show one the right path. These lines come from a poem that Bhante wrote in 1972, Sangharakshita's Verses of Acknowledgement, lines written on receiving from a member of the WBO the gift of his record collection, accompanied by some verses. I think it was Ananda who gave the record collection and the verses. No? A mystery, whoever it was, I don't know. But uh, these are the lines that uh, Bante wrote at that time. The poem is, is, of course, much longer. I've always especially liked this poem. There's something about the tone of it that has uh, appealed to me very strongly. Of course, there's a sort of Millerepa-like refrain to it. Uh, But there's a combination of humility and realism and inspiration, uh, uplift, that I find uh, very appealing, a very strong sense of appreciation and gratitude. Uh, Very Bante, in fact. And I particularly like those lines, and uh, amongst all the lines that I remember from Bante's poetry, these ones come back to me again and again. Though one's guru is not perfect, is enough to show one the right path. I think this is as succinct a statement of the attitude a disciple should have uh, to his or her teacher as is possible. You couldn't really put it more clearly and more succinctly. Um, You need to recognize that one's teacher, one needs to recognize that one's teacher uh, is as they are. You have to see them as they are with a particular character. You have to be somebody, don't you? You can't be uh, a general character, as it were. You have to have a particular uh, existence in space and time, and that's always going to take on a certain shape, a certain character. And that certain character uh, is not going to be easy for everyone or appeal to everyone and uh, perhaps be uh, accessible to all situations. One also needs to recognize that one's teacher is still growing, still has work to be done. But at the same time, you need to recognize that your teacher gives you the understanding and inspiration that you need to practice the Dhamma. You need these both aspects, the reality of a living human being and the uh, gift that they give you, the Dhamma that they show you. If one doesn't have this attitude, with both its aspects, many difficulties may come. Uh, If you're not realistic about the the human character of your teacher, well, you end up idealizing or having uh, expectations that are quite unrealistic, perhaps, for any human being to have. And uh, one cannot but imagine that an inevitable reaction must set in at some point when reality and ideals collide, or rather idealization collide. Uh, On the other hand, if you're not confident that your teacher is showing the way, 
If you see your teacher in a way as merely a human being, as merely a particular character, uh, it's likely to disrupt your practice of the Dhamma. You're likely not to see the heights to which the Dhamma flies. And that leads either to a premature self-reliance. You fall back on yourself before you've really got anything worth falling back on. Or you fall back on literalistic interpretations of the Dhamma. I uh, once uh, had to bring a disciple of uh, Mayazumi Roshi to see Bhante just after Mayazumi Roshi's uh, alcoholism had come to light in San Francisco. And uh, this uh, man, very sincere Englishman, uh, told me on the way in to see Bhante that it had been a big, big shock to find that his Roshi uh, was an alcoholic. And so he decided that the only thing he could do was to do all the uh, Soto Zen rituals exactly as they were in the book. That's the only thing he could do. He, he had no other resource. I tried to sort of suggest that maybe there was another way of looking at it, but he clearly was desperate to find some land to, to, to uh, ground to land upon. And for him, it was the rites and rituals, if, it, if you like, that uh, were left standing once his confidence in the, in, in the Roshi had gone. So that's uh, a quite sad story in a way. But in many ways, people do fall back on literalistic interpretations of the Dhamma because they don't have the, the living presence of the teacher to enliven those teachings and take them beyond the literal words. Of course, the third alternative is that you simply give up spiritual life. You just lose all confidence in it when you fail to have uh, a belief that your teacher can show you the, the path, the right path. Well, in my time in the order, I've seen plenty of all three of these alternatives. I've seen plenty of people uh, falling back upon premature self-reliance. I've seen many... Uh, take up literalistic interpretations of the Dhamma and I've seen people give up the spiritual life come to think of it I've probably done all three myself at various times but we need a teacher uh, and we need the right attitude to him or her uh, the Buddha makes this quite clear he says we need sapurisasam uh, sevo association with superior persons uh, he says in a, a famous list, which is repeated throughout the Pali Canon, uh, that we, we, we need four factors if we are to gain stream entry. And the first of these is association with superior persons. The others are, for the record, uh, listening to the true Dhamma, hearing the true Dhamma, wise attention, yoniso manasakara, that is mindfulness uh, in the right sort of way, appropriate mindfulness. And fourthly, practice in accordance with the Dhamma. These are the four factors that we require in order to gain stream entry. Quite simple, really. We sometimes make the whole subject of stream entry so complicated and so technical. But what the Buddha says is we just need these four things. Uh, we really need them. We need to practice them fully. We need association with superior persons. We need to listen to the true Dhamma. We need to give wise attention to our experience. And lastly, we need to practice 
in accordance with the Dhamma. So why do we need association with uh, superior people? It's so that we don't go round and round inside our own self-deluded constructions. Uh, I had a very, very vivid experience of this uh, on a long solitary I did uh, in 2008. I was alone for five months, and uh, I got a a, a very vivid and uh, disturbing experience of my own mind, which uh, I'm quite happy to generalize. I think it was a, a, a vivid experience of what mind is like. Uh, and what I saw was that my, my life, in my life, I've created a sort of set of views and ideas and opinions and feelings and attitudes, all of which sort of hold together and which kind of justify me, justify me doing what I'm doing. They're not necessarily comfortable, they're not necessarily pleasant, but they keep everything together. One makes a self-consistent construction within which one then lives. It's uh, uh, Prapancha Samya Sankha, according to uh, the, the earlier traditions. It's a, a construction based on a proliferation of ideas and attitudes. So you, you make this construction and uh, then you, you live within that, even if it's not comfortable. And whenever it it begins to leak, so to speak, you patch it up. And we're stuck inside that. Uh, That's the nature of ego clinging. It creates this self-consistent construction which every experience can be fitted into. It, of course, never works. And uh, uh, we, we, we sometimes have very, very powerful experiences of it not adding up but we usually fairly quickly find a patch in the um, computer programming sense that will sort of fix it and stop it from, uh, well, really disturbing us very strongly. So you, you, you get stuck within the side, the narrow confines of your own systems of interpretation. And I've had a very strong experience of this. A lot of the time, fortunately, it was all rather dark and painful at that time, which meant that I really wanted to get out of it. The problem is when it's quite pleasant and it all adds up, that's when it's really difficult because there's nothing to uh, provoke you to look outside it. But at that time, it was all rather dark and painful. And I remember the the thought just coming into my mind again and again and again, I'm sick of me. I'm sick of me. Uh, Yes, I very much wanted to get out of it. Whether that closed circle is pleasant or painful, uh, whether you do want to get out of it or you don't want to get out of it, it needs breaking. That breaking may happen spontaneously. Uh, at times, you just suddenly find yourself outside it, in the clear, pure air. Uh, but perhaps that's to do with your karma. Perhaps that's to do with your previous actions that sort of build up and break down the artificial constructions that you live within. Most likely, in my experience of myself and of many other people, it's Kalyanamitrata that breaks you out of that narrow confine, that narrow construct. I should, by the way, say that this uh, confine, I I, I talk about it as narrow, it may appear, appear very, very ample, and it can be extremely beautiful, 
but it's still confined. It's not reality. It's not the truth about things. And uh, you need some force, some factor from outside that system to break it down, to break through into it. Sometimes, as I say, it's the momentum of your own previous uh, skillful actions that precipitate a sort of breakdown, uh, and you just suddenly find yourself outside that in uh, a space where you can breathe. But most likely it's when you come across people who live outside the confines that you live within, for whom you have some connection, to whom you have some connection. Uh, so your, your association with them lifts you beyond the confines of your own present understanding. Some of you probably had the experience of uh, going to see Bante with a problem. And this is famous, or people often speak about this. You go to Bante with a particular problem. When you get inside, when you're in front of Bante, you can't even remember what the problem is. Just your connection with him solves the problem because the problem doesn't exist for him. He lives beyond that problem. That's what a, 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 a Kalyanamitra does for you. Uh, more than anything, they embody a somewhat broader perspective than your own. When you come in contact with them, with sufficient uh, feeling for them, you're lifted beyond the confines that you've lived within. Unfortunately, often the confines come back, of course, but uh, for a while you've lived beyond them and you've got uh, something that you can refer to. And if you associate regularly with uh, a Kalyanamitra, or if your Kalyanamitra is a very, very gifted communicator, you can dwell with them a, a great deal of the time. As Bante is a very skilled communicator, but I'll come back to that more. So they can show you a vista far more vast and beautiful, far closer to the truth of things, so that you live in a, in a clearer, purer air. So you, you could say that a teacher, in the sense that uh, Bante uh, speaks of it in his paper on what is the order, sense that he speaks of himself, is a Kalyanamitra Kalyana writ large because the, uh, the teacher creates a context which is a living communication of his own understanding, the, of the, uh, the breadth of his own experience in which you can dwell. So uh, Bante has created a system of ideas practices, institutions, human relationships, a whole atmosphere within which we can dwell and that breaks the narrow circle of our own limited uh, compromise with reality. That's effectively what I'm talking about. You, you make a compromise with your experience by interpreting it in ways that satisfy you when you don't look too closely. But... Uh, a teacher creates uh, a whole context which communicates something beyond your own narrow confines. You keep on coming up against experiences that lift you beyond yourself. 
And this is very much what Bante has done for us. You don't have to be in regular contact with Bante. I was quite struck this morning. Akasha Shuri, who's such a faithful disciple of Bante's, said she'd only had two personal communications with Bante. I was astonished by that. But, uh, well, she's allowed herself to dwell in the, the realm that is Bante's communication of the Dhamma, that... Uh, by, by dwelling in that, she's been able, uh, so evidently, to lift herself up into a, into a much more ample realm. Now, you can only do that, you can only be lifted up, if there's trust. It always used to strike me that uh, when I used to uh, go around with Bante as his secretary and so forth, I just used to sort of assume that when we went into the, uh, uh, the happy eater, Bante used to patronize the happy eater. I don't know why. There was no loyalty card in those days. But uh, yes, we used to go into the happy eater, and I just assumed that the waitress would uh, feel something special and be lifted out of the narrow confines of her happy eaterdom. Um, and it didn't seem to happen. <laughs> so, you know, and sometimes I'd eagerly introduce friends or my parents or something like that. Um, uh, but uh, it didn't seem to happen. Of course, it can happen. I've also had that experience that people who uh, have no reason to have any, any, any sort of connection with Bante seem to very quickly get the message. Well, I've, I've mentioned uh, our gypsy friends. Um, uh, I, 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 I took them to see Bante. And uh, just to tell you the whole story, because it's a painful one, I drove for four hours to get them to uh, see Bante in time. And uh, they were with Bante for ten minutes. I was furious. I saw them coming, and they'd been with Bante for ten minutes after a four-hour, rather arduous drive across Wales. But anyway, um, our, our, um, our Dhammometra Janos came into the room, and he was sort of staggering. And he just said, that man, his mind is completely clean. Uh, he said... Totally relaxed. There's no uh, tension in him anywhere. He got it just in a single experience. So it does happen. But uh, you have to have either a, an unusual degree of openness, as, as Janos clearly had, or to uh, well have some. For it to be effective and to be lastingly effective, you have to have some definite connection, some definite confidence, some openness. Uh, if you are con confident that your teacher is enough to show you the right path, then he can. If you're not, then he can't. He can, he can tell you the, the right path, he can speak of the right path, he can show you the right path until the proverbial cows come home and you won't uh, be shown the right path, you won't see it. So there needs to be a, a, a connection. There needs to be a, an, a, a receptive connection, a trusting connection, even a loving connection. Uh, because for, that, for there to be real trust, there needs to be some sense of, uh, of not just liking, but of deep appreciation and, and gratitude. Well, for myself, I've been very fortunate indeed that through my Dharma life, through most of my Dharma life, I've had a great deal of trust in Bhante as my teacher, and Kalyanamitra. And I've experienced uh, through most of my life, uh, my Dhamma life, uh, the very great benefits that that has brought me. And in that respect, at least, um, 
Uh, I've been relatively un, uh, uncomplicatedly been able to uh, put myself thoroughly into the order and movement and its teachings and practices. But, but, I've also had a new experience of what lack of trust is like. About seven years ago, my trust in Bhante shook. It, I, I never lost it, uh, and perhaps most basically it remained completely untouched. But uh, it was severely shaken. And uh, yes, it was a very, very difficult and painful experience. You can imagine after so many years of uh, serving, Bhante serving the Dhamma through his presentation of it. In a sense, it had nothing to do with Bhante. I want to stress that. It wasn't to do with those supposed revelations of the past, which are all becoming rather dreary. I mean, not the... You know what I mean. Um, it wasn't essentially anything to do with, with Bhante. It wasn't essentially anything to do with anything that happened at the time, although there were triggers, as there must be. Uh, I could offer you various explanations, and a number of people have been happy to tell me what happened to me, as people so willingly are often. Uh, you know, various theories, growing up, middle age crisis, at my age. Um, <laughs> Of course, some people suggested I'd seen through Bante at last. Uh, all sorts of theories were there, and I've certainly had my own theories. But I came to see that all those theories were themselves attempts to create a new patch, if you like. They were part of the interpretive framework through which I could make myself comfortable. I could explain it away, and then I needn't feel so deeply ashamed as I came to feel. Uh, I could explain it in terms of some psychological theory or well, some weakness in Bante or something like that. But in the end, I've, uh, I've come to con consider that I do understand what happened in, uh, in descriptive terms. I know this happened, then that happened. But I prefer to leave it unexplained. It was as if a particular framework of understanding, and perhaps this relates to what I've already been saying about Prapancha Samya Sankar, uh, uh, it, it collapsed. It lasted for years, but it broke down. And the resulting two years uh, were the most painful and unsettling of my life. Uh, I couldn't let go of Bhante, but I, I found it difficult to be sure how to trust him. Um, it meant if I couldn't trust Bante, I couldn't trust everything that, for me, stood upon him. The order and the movement, especially when I'd be getting some, uh, um, you know, feedback from the order. You know, the, the, the order and movement, which was the work to which I devoted my life from the age of, uh, effectively, 25. Uh, the practices and teachings, everything became open to doubt. And I began to wonder whether, you know, I needed to look uh, uh, um, at, at these teachings afresh and maybe even find new teachings that even that thought crossed my mind. Most of all, of course, I lost confidence in myself because my whole being rested upon uh, my place in the order, my relationship with Bhante. Uh, I no longer knew which way up everything was. Well, since my whole life had been shaped by my association with Bante, I had no choice but to face the issues head on. I couldn't go away. I'd have liked to have done, but I couldn't. Uh, 
and I, I chose to take a lot of solitude and a lot of space. Uh, I found that there was some very real solid ground in my experience. I found that never for a moment did I lose faith in, did I even question the Buddha and the Dhamma. Those remained completely solid for me. I was completely convinced that the Buddha had attained a transcendental state, that he had gone beyond all human suffering, all human turbulence, all human unskillfulness. Itipiso Bhagava Arahang, and so on. And I was completely convinced of his Dhamma, that this was the path, hard as it might seem, to, uh, to what the Buddha experienced. So I deliberately forced myself to confront my mistrust. I deliberately took up the, pra the prostration practice again. There's Bhante sitting there in front of me, between me and the Buddha. I read my way through quite a lot of his work, especially his memoirs. And everything gradually came back into focus. And I hope a sharper, clearer, more accurate focus than before, and less based on Prapancha Samya Sankha, on artificial constructions. Two things stand out. Uh, through doing the refuge tree practice, through reading through Bhante's work, uh, I felt a renewal of uh, my Kalyanamitra relationship with Bhante. Seeing him on the refuge tree, I, I felt, well, I can only put it this way, his energy the particular quality that Bhante has, his particular mind. Uh, his mind larger, freer, truer than my own, far more creative than my own, far richer than I, my own. And through contemplating uh, the figure of Bhante, which embodied what I've experienced directly in, in, in personal communication with him, I was lifted up out of myself and uh, into a far purer, clearer realm. Uh, I found the same sort of experience reading his memoirs and his, his poems. A strange experience. I read through his memoirs, which I've read through a couple of times before, but I read them through over a period of about ten days. I just read from beginning to end, and I read supplementary uh, autobiographical material from... Uh, um, from Genesis to the Diamond Sutra, the retrospect and uh, um, letters, what do you call them, travel letters and, and other things like that. And I found that in reading those, I was deeply, deeply happy, satisfied, contented. My difficulties melted away. Uh, so I, I, I experienced through the written word Bhante's Kalyanamitrata. And I think this is something very, very important to realize about Bhante. I know that in the past, uh, when I was working with Bhante as his secretary, he was very much engaged with the, the, the writing of the memoirs. And I used to find it quite frustrating because there'd be a lot of work to do. And uh, although he did do quite a lot of work, he didn't do enough for me as it were. I was often left, uh, uh, as it were, figuratively, um, what's the word, twiddling my fingers. I did manage to occupy myself in various ways, but, uh, you know, I felt, well, why is he writing these memoirs, you know? Who wants to know what happened, etc., etc.? Um, 
But I realized, particularly on this, this solitary retreat, why Bante had put so much of himself into those memoirs. Well, because he's put so much of himself into those memoirs. Uh, they communicate the man, and they communicate his spirit, his attitude, and in reading them I found I was sharing that attitude, that, uh, 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 that perspective. I think this is what um, effective art does. I've been reflecting on this, especially with cinema. You, you see a really good film, and your whole attitude to life is different. Uh, you come out of the film seeing with fresh eyes. I, I remember a very strong experience seeing the Vermeers in, in, uh, in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam and coming out and seeing with Vermeer's eyes. So when you, when you read a, a really good uh, work, which is, is well written, which is beautifully written, it communicates something more than facts, of course. And what Bante manages to do is, is, is to communicate his unique perspective on life, uh, which uh, is more than merely his character, um, which I felt I was participating in very strongly, very deeply. I was very tempted just to go back and read them right through again. So, uh, yes, I, I had this very strong experience of Kalyana Mitrata, of being lifted up out of myself, out of my um, really boring circles and cycles of self-interpretation, uh, self-justification, and so on. And I found that, again, my, my deep appreciation of, 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 of Bante, Bante and my gratitude to him for all he has given me. I worked very closely for Bante, with Bante for many, many years, and... Uh, I believe that if I hadn't met Bante, I think my life would have been a very miserable one. I'm fairly sure of that. Uh, I, I, I've you know, seen people like me, as it were, even my own dear brother. I've seen what my life would have been like, the sort of upbringing I had, the world that I was entering into. I, I, I had no place in it. Uh, there was no longer an empire to rule. Um, <laughs> And call the British Navy a navy today. Um, yes, I had no real place in the modern world, and I don't think I'd have successfully found one, try as I might, uh, through rock and roll and uh, uh, drugs. Um, so I, 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 I strongly believe that I needed Kalyana Mitrata. I needed somebody to uh, show me a way, show me a path. And uh, I think that Bante's unique combination of, uh, of characteristics were the only ones that I could have responded to. So, uh, yes, I, I, I felt again Bante's Kalyana Mitrata. As I say, it never went again, I, away completely. I don't want to be too hard on myself, but it shook in a very disturbing way. Uh, so, yes, that came back. Great relief. Great shame as well. Great remorse. Um... But I realized something more than that. I realized that what, what had kept me, what had sort of, I'd landed upon was my deep confidence in the Buddha, my deep confidence in the Dhamma. And I realized that that came from Bhante. My whole understanding of the Dhamma, my whole connection with the Buddha comes through Bhante. Bhante showed me the Buddha. Bhante showed me the Dhamma. Uh, my 
understanding the Dhamma, my way of understanding the Dhamma, is based upon his way of understanding the Dhamma. And it's my way. It's not merely a parroted version of his. I'm quite confident of that. I see it that way myself. But I could not have seen it that way myself if I'd not had that uh, very strong uh, experience of Bhante as showing me the Dhamma. Uh, doing the prostration practice, there he is in front of me. Behind him, uh, the, all the three jewels, the Buddha and all the three jewels. And that, uh, I think, is quite an important spatial juxtaposition. Here am I, there are the three jewels, there is Bhante. I've approached the three jewels uh, almost entirely through him. Uh, he's the first figure in front of me. I must say, doing the prostration practice during those periods of doubt was a quite difficult experience. I used to sometimes experience a physical unwillingness to go down. But uh, fortunately, I've got a strong enough will to get myself down there and up again. Um, yes, Bante's been my point of access to the three jewels. Uh, Yes, it is my own experience. I want to stress that because I hope I'm talking to people who are not going to uh, interpret me wrongly here. Uh, be, having that sort of confidence and trust does not mean giving up uh, your own uh, freedom, your own volition. So his way of understanding and presenting the Dhamma is the basis for my experience of the Dhamma. The experiences that I've had, such as they are, from the Dhamma are on the basis of his way of looking at things. Whatever happens to me in my meditation, what happens to me in uh, other situations, I look at it in the way that he taught me to look at it. Uh, I, I have the principles deeply inside me that he has, uh, has shown me. And I believe those principles are adequate to every situation I'm likely to encounter. I just have to use them. Uh, so it was the, the fundamentals of that presentation uh, that uh, I realized was the basis for my, my uh, whole Dhamma life. My whole life, let's face it, because there's nothing left in my life but that. Uh, and I wanted to get that clear, not because it was unclear for me, but because I felt there were, were a number of uh, hostages that had been given to fortune, even in Bante's own work, there are a number of interpretive uh, uh, stories going around, even within the order. And I want you to see that clarified, as it were, one last time, once and for all. Uh, and so I had these wonderful conversations with Bante last um, March, I think. Uh, and uh, they were really a highlight of, uh, of my life. I felt that I, I sort of shared communication with Bante more deeply than I've ever done before and that uh, uh, what I, I learned from him was nothing new it's all in a survey actually but it was uh, a much deeper understanding of it uh, and this was the basis of course of the paper that I wrote uh, revering and relying upon the Dhamma so I, I want to make just a few comments on what I consider the operative points of that paper. That is, the ones that uh, directly affect us. 
Um, I don't want to go over the paper. Well, I'd love to, but I presume that you've all read it and have understood it um, fully because it's fairly straightforward. So I don't want to just give a new account of it. Uh, but there are, there are a few points that I think we need to pay special attention to, and it's those that I want to go into in uh, what's left of this talk. But before that, I want to speak somewhat tangentially uh, a bit more about trust in the teacher. Uh, it's just getting something, saying something that uh, I've been wanting to say for some time. It, it seems to me that we are collectively in a position to leave behind the issue of Bante's past. Even individually, we may not be able to. But collectively, I believe we can leave it behind. Perhaps we have left it behind. That is, as an issue. Uh, it may be an individual issue, but surely it's no longer a collective one. And let's take it out of the collective arena. Let's deal with it as individuals, not collectively. Uh, all, all new details, of course, may emerge because, you know, everybody, anybody can say anything at any time. But the facts are broadly known. Uh, we know there are different perspectives on those facts, but Bante's made it quite clear that uh, he has no more to say on the subject that I'm not referring to, but that we all know of. Um, there seem to be four broad categories of response. Some people have no difficulties with what they've learnt, have no, uh, no uh, alteration in their uh, trust in Bante as their teacher. Lucky people, number one. Number two, some have perhaps some misgivings with varying degrees of uh, uh, intensity about what happened, but are still able fully to accept Bante as their teacher, uh, which is a completely consistent position. Thirdly, some are in a state of doubt and confusion about the past and about whether Bante is their teacher. Fourthly, some have decided that he is not their teacher. I've heard that said. I don't know whether people stand by it. Of course, those who still have trust, whether in the first or second sense, uh, have no problem. The first lot have never had any problem. The second lot have got past their problem. In, in a sense, those who do not accept him as their teacher have no problem either. Uh, they just have to follow through the logical consequences of their position, which I'm not going to spell out. Uh, from my own experience uh, in this that I've just recounted to you of wavering trust, my heart goes out to those who are still in some kind of conflict, even though my conflict was not of the same kind. My strong advice, my strong urging uh, request, is that you sort it out with your teachers and Kalyanamitras in the order who have resolved it for themselves, not with those who are equally uh, in turmoil, uh, and engage with Bhante as a Kalyanamitra in the kinds of ways I've mentioned. I recommend the prostration practice. If that doesn't make you, it'll break you. Uh, surely there's no need for further public agonizing. Let's have an end of it. Uh, and especially not of the unpleasantly personal kind that from time to time uh, uh, reappears. There we are. Got that off my chest. Um, let's come back to the Dhamma as presented um, by Bante. 
Um, yes, yeah, so one more thing I did want to say, that unpleasant speech rebounds on the speaker. The Buddha said that. So, uh, actually, th- this, uh, this little discursion doesn't, uh, excursion doesn't really take us away from the theme of trust. Sorry, what I'm now going to say doesn't really take us away from the, the theme of trust, which seems to be the thread of my talk. Uh, Bhante's presentation of the Dhamma has emphasized Pratichya Samuppada as the fundamental expression of the Buddha's insight. Uh, he stressed the radical nature of the Buddha's thinking in the, in the context of the highly speculative ancient Indian philosophy, and modern Indian thinking is highly speculative to this day. Uh, even uh, even supposedly uh, rational scientists have an extraordinary capacity for, for speculation, especially in India. His, his thought, the Buddha's thought, points us back to our experience and away from theories and systems. That seems to be the essence of it. Uh, Pratichya Samapada is not another theory. It's a way of looking at experience. It's a way of looking at what arises. It's, it's an attitude. It's an attitude of mindfulness. Uh, it has a philosophical uh, implication, but fundamentally it's a way of looking at things. That's why I don't like some of these assimilations of uh, Pratichya Samapada to modern uh, 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 scientific theories and so forth. It's, it, it has some bearing on that, but fundamentally it's not to do with that at all. Uh, so Bhante asks us to honour that uh, estuel of theory and speculation rigorously. And he asks us to avoid terms that, however well-intentioned, suggest either eternalism or nihilism, even if they do not suggest it to you. Uh, I think there's no important spiritual experience that cannot be encompassed by the approach that Bhante has given us. Perhaps sometimes you can't find immediately ways of expressing it in the terms that uh, you've inherited from Bhante. I think that simply means that you haven't examined the experience closely enough and understood Bhante's perspective on right view deeply enough. Uh, I don't think there's anything that you can ha- that can happen to you, whether in meditation or in uh, the business of life, that cannot be expressed through the terms that we've been given or terms that are implied by what we've been given. There's no need to borrow new language, especially from late Buddhism, um, that uh, takes us uh, into speculative fields, again, however well-intentioned, which, uh, which give a hostage uh, to the eternalist fortune. Uh, I think the issue is going from your experience to words rather than going from given words to your experience. The problem is that the words that you take uh, and impose upon your experience then determine that experience. They determine how that experience unfolds. You need to go from experience to, uh, to words. And one of the things I found most delightful in reading Bante's memoirs uh, it was his uh, own exploration of his, his spiritual experience. 
And, you know, some people have said he doesn't speak about that and so forth. He's full of it. He's absolutely full of it, that, that, that of his inner life. But it's all explained so uh, sort of matter-of-factly, no, not matter-of-factly, in such plain terms. Poetic, but plain. And not uh, grabbing at grand uh, abstractions, but always in very real, very immediate, practical, experiential terms. It's a delight to, to read that uh, and, and to see that Bantu makes no big deal of um, you know, suddenly finding himself lying on a, a perfectly flat plane, looking down at uh, you know, the starry infinity of the sky. He just describes it um, well, like any other experience, as well as, the, of course, the, the great joy and, and happiness that went with that. So there's no attempt to impose... Uh, artificial constructions upon it, uh, uh, constructions that very easily lend themselves to speculation and therefore to falsification of experience, to reification of experience, thereby to falsification. There's nothing that anybody wants to express that is genuinely important that you cannot do through uh, the approach that Bante has taken. You may find new words but they will be new words in the poetic sense, not in the philosophical sense. You will express them with greater beauty, uh, greater evocativeness, but not with uh, a, a, a nice abstract label. So it's very, very important indeed for us to understand right view in this sense clearly. We can so easily go astray. Uh, we can so easily mould our experience to uh, theoretical structures that are not our own. And of course you could say that much of world religion is of this kind. You cannot doubt that so many people within so many religions of the world have genuine experience. But uh, the, 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 uh, the framework they impose upon that, to some extent from a Buddhist point of view, falsifies it or limits it. I'm very, very interested. Uh, I had some conversation with some young uh, monks and, interestingly, nuns who were doing the Geshe course in Dharamshala. And uh, they explained to me that during the 15 years of the Geshe course, they did no meditation. Shock, horror, no meditation. Why don't they do meditation? Because you, you shouldn't meditate, according to them, until you can establish shunyata. Because if you, if you haven't established shunyata, your meditation experience will be assimilated to your wrong views. They didn't say it like that, but that's what it comes down to. To me, this goes far too far, but it makes a very, very interesting point. That as long as we have not got hold of right view, even our good Buddhist experience is falsified. After all, all the practices that we do, most other traditions have some form of them. What is distinctive about Buddhism is right view. It's the view of uh, anicca, anatta, dukkha, etc. It's the view of the way things are. So uh, we need to firmly base ourselves upon that, safeguard it again and again, uh, and understand that even if it's all right for us, we're injecting something into the discourse that may... Uh, may be badly misunderstood later down the line. It's very interesting that in the Brahmajala Sutta, 
uh, I can't remember now the statistics, I did add it all up, but it's something like 50%, maybe even more, of the 64 wrong views are to do with misinterpretation of meditative and visionary experience. This is why you need a teacher, because you misinterpret your experience, your real experience, which is very, very compelling to you, very convincing to you. You fit it into a, a, an erroneous structure, and uh, the erroneous structure gives quite uh, good expression to it, at least up to a certain point. But you're stuck. You're stuck inside that. So, uh, yes, there's nothing wrong with experience. Experience is experience. All kinds of experiences will come to you in the course of spiritual life. But uh, we need to speak of and think of those experiences in the light of right view, and especially of this estuel of theoretical uh, structures, abstract uh, uh, structures, that however well-intentioned, however well-understood, uh, are hostages to uh, misunderstanding in the future. Yes, there's nothing wrong with experience itself. The problem is the way we think about it and interpret it, and then how we live out, uh, live our lives on the basis of that interpretation. You hear a voice, you decide it's God, and then you live with, uh, with God. God help you. Um, I would like to see personally much, much more effort in the order going into understanding Bante's presentation of right view. I remember when we were starting up the, uh, the men's ordination process at Padmaloka, which I think is probably the, still the basis for ordination training all over the world, uh, we, in, we, 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 we brought in the first chapter of the survey because I realized, because we realized, that uh, so many people didn't understand right view and uh, they didn't have that perspective. But just to do it once, two-week intensive course, most people you know, have a glimpse, but they cannot sustain it. I think we need to revisit that chapter again and again. And in all modesty, I think my uh, revering and uh, reverencing the Dhamma gives a, a, a sort of uh, um, an updated expression of the same principles. So much for the critical aspect. Um, we, need to, we need to have trust in that critical aspect. Uh, we need to have trust that Bante really is saying something serious. He's not got a prejudice against Tathagatagarbha. It's not just his funny old way. Um, he really has got doubts about that as a useful term, even if he acknowledges the experience that lies for many people behind it, and so on. Uh, he's got something important to say about the, uh, uh, the, the, the climate of our order and movement now and in the future. So I suggest that we need to take the experiences that we find other ways of expressing and see how they can be expressed in the terms that uh, Bante has, uh, has clarified for us. So, yes, that's the critical aspect. But there's another uh, aspect which might be called the, the dynamic aspect. And this is where the need for trust really comes in. Well, the Dhamma life is possible because of Pratichya Samupada. Uh, it means, because of Pratichya Samupada, a complete change is possible. If uh, everything did not uh, 
arise dependently, it would not be impermanent, and you would be stuck as you are. Uh, Within the overall complex of conditioned relations, there are two kinds of processes that make change for the better possible. Uh, Indeed, that make Buddhahood possible. And these processes are found under the heading of karma and dharma niyama. Just just a a, a slight aside here. I've already heard people talking about the dharma niyama as if it was God. Um, You can take the term and forget what it means and, and sort of think of it as a something that is working upon you. But it's merely a, a heading for a particular category of conditioned processes. It has no real existence. Surprise, surprise, because nothing has any ultimate real existence. So let, let's be careful even how we use useful terms like Dhamma and Kama. Uh, Dhamma Niyama uh, means uh, simply all those processes uh, that lead from self-transcendence, the first step in self-transcendence, to Buddhahood itself, and who knows, beyond. Bhante's refused to close the mystery at the gates of Buddhahood. Uh, If we are to make a success of spiritual life, we need to have as much faith in Kamaniyama and Dhammaniyama, or the processes that are headed under Kamaniyama and Dhammaniyama, as we do say in the laws of physics, such as the law of gravity. You know, when you come to a, j- a ditch, you don't think, if I jump, will I fall to the ground or will I fly into the air? You instinctively trust gravity. You may not even understand gravity, but you, you, you instinctively uh, submit yourself to the principle of gra- gravity. You jump, you come down on the other side, if you're lucky. In the monsoon, sometimes one comes down in the ditch in the middle. So, uh, yes, we need to have the same sort of confidence. It can't be the same sort of confidence, but you get my, my um, hyperbole. Uh, we need to have a, a sense that uh, acting in this way will really bring me what I want, what is best for me, what is most useful to me. Uh, you need to have that sort of confidence because otherwise you won't, uh, you won't act upon it. Uh, one needs to have complete trust that these processes will bring one what is highest and best. The natural processes, they're just part of the way things are. They're not made by on anybody. They're not created by you. Uh, they just are there for reasons that are entirely mysterious and that perhaps we'll get some glimpse of once we really do uh, enter the Dhamma. So one must stop looking for outer solutions to the problems of life or for real fulfillment. One must accept the principle of karma. The Buddha says uh, in a very important list that I, I think it's well worth us digging out uh, the five contemplations that everyone should reflect upon regularly. The Buddha says this. I'd never come across them before. Um, I've come across them, but not put in that way in Anguttara Nikaya. Anyway, the fourth, fifth of these is, I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions. Actions are the womb from which I have sprung. Actions are my protection. Uh, Actions are my relations and supporters. Actions are my protection. 
Whatever actions I do, good or bad, of these I shall become the heir. You really need to believe this. And you need to investigate. We need to investigate the, uh, the extent to which we do believe it. We have an instinctive sense that uh, jam today is uh, better than jam tomorrow. I'm sorry, I've lost, but I can't remember why that metaphor came up. <laughs> you instinctively think that immediate gratification is better than, you know, the long, hard slog of, uh, of, of building skillful, uh, skillful mental states. But you need to really think this through. The other five, uh, four uh, contemplations that uh, I will uh, grow old, I will be sick, I will die, I must leave everything that is dear to me behind, they all sharpen the focus on karma. Because karma is the only thing that you're left with on your deathbed. Uh, so yes, are we convinced? Do we believe that in the end it is our skillful actions that we must rely upon? Uh, do we really believe that it's more important that we act skillfully than that he or she apologizes and recognizes the error of their ways? Uh, do we, we really believe that karma is the most important thing, not that we have the, uh, the ideal circumstances for ourselves? If we really believed that karma was the... Uh, uh, the operative uh, uh, momentum in our lives, the operative process in our lives, surely they would be very, very different lives. Or to the extent that we do believe that, they are different from most people's. Uh, do we recognize that death is the... Um, uh, uh, do we realize that uh, when we die, that is the only investment we can take with us? Everything else we, we accumulate, we leave behind. Even all our friendships, our relationships, they all go. What you're left with is the momentum created by your skillful actions or your unskillful ones. So all our internal difficulties are due to our own karma. Uh, I think it's very important. We so often think of karma in terms of the external effects. And they are there. But I think the most important thing about karma is the way it, it molds your own consciousness, your own mind. The mind that I'm speaking with now and that you're listening with now is the mind that we've created through our actions in the past, indeed over our whole lives. When you meditate, the mind that you've got when you meditate is the one that you've been making. Uh, it's not uh, something random. Sometimes we speak about karma as if uh, karma happened to something that was impermeable, something that was unalterable. It's sort of added on to it. You get a bit of suffering, you get a bit of pain, but basically you're the same. But actually karma is constantly modifying you. And uh, yes, we need to have a vivid sense Especially, I think, it's useful when you sit to meditate and you're, you're, you're confronted with a certain state of mind. Where's this come from? It's come from what you've done. Uh, you've inherited it. You've deserved it. You've created it, good or bad. Uh, yes, so, so karma works, especially in spiritual life, by reforming our mind. Karma is the basis for shamatha. Sometimes, again, we speak of uh, 
of, of, of meditation as if it was a technical matter. Actually, meditation is simply the activation of karma on, on, a, on a, a deeper and more direct level. That's all you're doing. Uh, you're working to change the, 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 the you're, you're putting more skillful currents into your mind. And you're, you're slowly modifying your mind. If you don't get into dhyana, the Buddha has it quite plain, it's simply because you're not skillful enough and you're not mindful enough. It's not, you know, Bante's fault for teaching the mindfulness of breathing the wrong way, um, uh, etc. You know, tinkering. We're always tinkering with our practices. It's actually ourselves we need to tinker with uh, by creating skillful minds and acting skillfully. We're always innovating. I, I've always been doing this. You just have to find a new way of doing it, a new way of putting it. But actually, what you need to be doing is accumulating skillful actions. Those will transform you. If, if you've got a, an accumulation of skillful actions, meditation comes quite naturally. Uh, you find it in the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, uh, the Noble Quest Sutta. The Buddha says that if you uh, uh, act in accordance with the precepts, what happens? Well, you're happy. And if you're happy, your mind becomes concentrated. QED. You don't need a different technique. You just need to go through that positive nidana chain, a, a karmic nidana chain. There's a positive karmic nidana chain that leads from ethical action uh, to happiness to concentration. So our early, the early part of our spiritual lives, which is probably many lifetimes, is almost entirely to do with a karma niyama. It's uh, creating a new mind, a better mind, uh, through skillful action. We're, we're altering the current of our mind. And of course we all know this because you, uh, you know, on those good days, you do the metta bhavna and, and you go in in one state and you come out in another state. That's karma. It's not a technique. You've, you, you've, uh, metta is, is a karmic thing. Uh, Buddha say, the Buddha says uh, in the um, Mahaparinibbana Sutta, uh, um, um, Metang uh, kushila kamang. Yes, so the cheto kamang, the mind, this skillful intention. So uh, it, uh, meta, sorry, meta, this skillful intention. So meta is a is an accumulation of positive mental states, and that alters how you feel. So. Uh, if we take care of the karma niyama, the dhamma niyama unfolds. The karma, the, 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 uh, the karma niyama creates the basis for the arising of vipassana. It, uh, shamatha, which comes about through karmic uh, accumulation of, of skillful mental states, uh, of, of, of skillful actions, uh, leads to vipassana. Of course, uh, what happens is a, is a radical shift, because karma is based on I. Uh, karma comes into existence when self-consciousness arises. Animals have no karma. But once you become aware of yourself, you enter into a new relationship with your experience. And your own actions modify your experience uh, under the law of karma. Uh, so that's determined, or rather that's provoked in the first place, by your uh, uh, identification of yourself as I. But I is 
ultimately only a verbal convenience. It's an operational concept, a very useful one, arranging to give talks and things like that, it's telling your story. Uh, but it refers to nothing that exists in any ultimate sense. But in the karmic phase of your spiritual life, you can't avoid having some sense of it as, uh, as ultimate or real. The Buddha says that uh, an arahant, consummate with taints destroyed, might still say, I speak, or they speak to me. But skillfully knowing the world's parlance, he uses such terms as mere expressions. He doesn't take them as applying to something real and ultimate. So we have to go beyond, in a sense, the basis of karma, the paradox of spiritual life. We have to be convinced of I as agent, but we have to get to a point where we leave behind the idea of I, at least as uh, some kind of ultimate agent. Uh, we need to go beyond karma. We have to realize that, in a sense, no action is possible. Uh, and yet, what has to be done is done rightly, spontaneously. We must see through I. This is the six element practice. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not myself. This was the teaching that the Buddha gave his own son, his inheritance to his own son, his legacy to his own son, uh, this teaching. Uh, and we must allow, therefore, thereby, another process to take us over and work through us. Because you're talking beyond I, it's very difficult to get the, the pronouns right, as it were. Because, of course, in a sense, it's not not you either. It's not somebody else. Uh, but it's not you in the, in the sense that, in a, that, that, that you have to work in the karmic phase. Something carries you away. You're carried along by the Dhamma Sota, the, the stream of the Dhamma. It's a lovely phrase, isn't it? Carried along by the stream of the Dhamma. So you can just relax in that stream as it, as it unfolds naturally within you, as a, a series of uh, conditioned processes ar arise within you, so to speak, uh, which you do not will, which you don't need to will. You've done the work under the karmic heading. You've created the conditions for them. They just unfold naturally, spontaneously within you. Uh, that, of course, means that we must trust the Dhamma We must trust that stream. We must trust those uh, conditioned processes. Otherwise, we will not let go, and we will remain attached to our own agency. So this is the twofold trust we need. We need to trust the processes of karma and recognize that it's only karma that can uh, take us forward on the spiritual path. It's only karma that can take us beyond the world's sufferings but that karma must be the basis for the arising of dharma. Uh, and the dharma we must allow to unfold within us. That uh, dharma stream only truly carries us away at stream entry. It carries you away irreversibly, of course. But it tugs at us from the start. Perhaps all of us uh, 
well, we must have experienced that tug. Uh, I remember Bante saying that uh, what we should be looking for in people who have asked for ordination is a touch of the transcendental. And that touch of the transcendental is the touch of the, of the stream of the Dharma. Uh, you're looking for, and by definition, all of you must have experienced the stream of the Dhamma tugging at you, arising within your own mind, even at times carrying you way beyond yourself, so that you're in a state that is definitely yours, it's not somebody else's, but is not yours, because it's not willed by you. It transcends I in the limited uh, um, sense. So, yes, it tugs at us from the start. But the problem is that we resist it. And until stream entry, we've got the power to resist it. Uh, until we've created the karmic base. The karmic work is to create the base on which we can just relax into that stream. If we relax before then, there are a lot of other streams going on. And uh, some of those streams may be very pleasant and so forth, but they all lead to abysses, fathomless abysses. Uh, so, uh, yes, we must not relax our karmic efforts until uh, we've got to the point when the, the karma niyama, the dhamma niyama can carry us away. Uh, at that point, we can finally stop resisting. Huge sigh of relief, a, a peon of joy, as so often uh, uh, the Buddha's disciples give when the, the Dhamma stream arises within them. Uh, yes, we can relax with relief and give ourselves up to the, the gentle freedom of that stream. Um, this is the right path. Working with karma to build a mind that can let go of all attachment. Working again and again with shila, samadhi and pragna so that we build for ourselves a new mind, a mind that is capable of not resisting, that uh, is able to be carried away by the stream of the Dhamma. And then all the time, allowing the stream of the Dhamma, allowing the tug of the Dhamma to play upon us, deliberately opening ourselves up to it in many, many ways. Kalyanamitrata, devotion, sadhana, uh, and so on. Allowing the, the, the mysterious process of the Dhamma, which is completely beyond our understanding, to play upon us until the point comes when we can slip into that stream and let it carry us away towards Buddhahood. Well, this is what Bhante's shown. He's shown us the right path. He's shown us it with a very, very clear exposition of right view. He's shown it also in his own person. He's an embodiment of that Dhamma stream. So I can personally, quite completely, unequivocally say for all my uh, wanderings, though my guru may not be perfect, he is enough to show me the right path, and he has done so, and I thank him again and again and again. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. 
Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.